Welcome to the Smoke Pit. We are super proud of ourselves. A bit of congratulations are in order. Not only have we hit 100 episodes of the podcast, but we have officially published over 100 articles at popsmokemedia.com. Go check it out. Please let us know what you think. We have some uh, really interesting articles on there, and I'd like to run through a couple of the wave tops before we get into today's episode. We receive reports that a medic at CST on Fort Knox had used the same needle to pop nearly two dozen blisters in a row. After speaking with Army Public Affairs, we were able to confirm that that indeed happened. The Army stating that no formal punishment was given to the medic, that individual was simply retrained and then eventually sent back to their unit. Side note, uh, please don't let anyone use a dirty needle on you, whether it's for an IV or a tattoo or anything like that. Super gross. The CDC says that it's one of the top contributors to spreading of diseases. Just gross. Just don't do it. And if you're a medic, don't do not do that either. All right, next up, a report stated that the former president of Afghanistan fled the country with cars and helicopters full of cash. Apparently, he was trying to take so much money with him that he couldn't fit it all and had to leave a lot of it on the tarmac. Last but not least, a uh, Marine that I had deployed with is trying to get his interpreter from his Afghan deployment out of the country. The individual stated that uh, yesterday he was captured and beaten by the Taliban. They uh, took his phone, handcuffed him, fired their weapons next to his head in an attempt to intimidate him for trying to leave with his wife and children. And so efforts are underway to try to get him out. The interpreter, nicknamed Tiger, states that the biggest opposition he's facing right now is that the visa application process is just simply too bogged down. We have evacuated over 88,000 people as the deadline approaches. So that's it for the news today. Our next interview is with a Texas SWAT team leader. He's a very experienced Texas peace officer to give us some insight as to what goes through the head of an officer as they're approaching an active shooter situation and what you can do as a good guy with a gun to possibly mitigate any blue-on-blue interactions between yourself and their responding officers. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Smoke Pit. Today we have a fantastic guest. Um, one of the things that have really kept me up at night is the possibility of being in a situation that turns out to be inherently dangerous. Specifically, if there's something, like God forbid, like an active shooter or whatever the case would be. A lot of us have permits to carry concealed weapons, and you find yourself in that situation where, first and foremost, you may have to deal with a threat to preserve uh, your life, the life of your loved ones, and everyone around you. However, what happens after that? And unfortunately, we've seen instances throughout the country where uh, concealed weapon uh, permit holders or officers in plain clothes have actually um, accidentally been targeted by responding uniform officers. And so today we're uh, going to talk about this with the subject matter expert. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you for having me. My name is Kevin Willis, and I've been in law enforcement for 14 years, as well as as EMS as a paramedic, and I also teach active shooter curriculum for peace officers, as well as medicine for firefighters and EMS responding to them, and I teach civilian classes. Well, thank you for joining us. You, uh, you've, you've had quite the extensive career. I don't think a lot of people realize how big of a problem that is where you have a, uh, a, a private citizen, a good guy with a gun, or a plainclothes officer, and they're in a situation like that, and then their responding officers show up, and they don't know what's going on. All they see is, you know, somebody with a gun, and they had reports of, 
you know, a, a bad guy there. So w- would you walk us through both sides of that as far as like, what is the thought process first and foremost of the uh, responding uniform officers? And then we'll get into uh, what it's like for, you know, being the good guy with the gun or the plainclothes officer. Well, the first half of it, uh, the responding officer, you get this call, this call for service and it's an emergency call and shots are being fired and comes as an active shooter. It could be at a school, it could be at a mall, place of commerce, a uh, place of worship. Automatically your adrenaline is dumping and your heart rate is through the roof. It's the worst call you can get. It's one of the reasons many police officers sign up that, that day. That day has arrived that I can now, not for, for, lack, of better, for lack of better terms, be a hero. Uh, this is why I did it. This is why I took this job and this oath and this badge. You get the opportunity to put the skills that you have trained for uh, to the intended purposes to save lives. Exactly. Against a truly evil person. Yeah. These these people that go and pick soft targets and they shoot kids or unarmed people or people at a church to worship. There's no other word but evil. And I won't say their names. You know, you always see it in the news. I won't name the suspects. We name the victims. And you finally get that call as an officer. Well... Your adrenaline is going to dump. Now you're driving 100 miles an hour there. Your radio call, your radio transmissions are full of information. Uh, people are walking all over each other on radio. Everyone's driving there as fast as they can with lights and sirens. And you're trying to get the information that you can. And the information you're getting is from dispatch. And remember that at this time, the dispatch, how many calls are they getting? Probably a ton. These dispatchers are getting so many calls that, that the 911 call center is rolling over calls to the next one and the next one and the next one. And the people that are calling are naturally, as they should be, hysterical. And information like the fog of war, it does not always clearly transcribe to the officers that are responding, and they get there and they have to figure these things out. And upon their arrival, everybody's hysterical, as you would expect them to be. Everybody's yeah. running for their lives. I'll give the example of Parkland, Florida. When they show up, what, what are the kids doing? They are running out the doors as fast as possible. You try to stop one of the kids and say, hey, who did it? Hey, what's the suspect description? They aren't stopping. They are scared for their life, and they're running as they should be. They're self-rescuing. It's no different at a mall or a church or a place of commerce or anywhere else. So you get there, and you get to figure this out. You have to work through the chaos. Your adrenaline is, is coursing through your, your arteries and your veins. And upon your arrival, you see somebody with a gun. Naturally, especially less experienced officers or more or officers that are maybe not used to stress and more hypervigilant, might automatically assume, without taking that scan process and identifying and challenging these people, they're, they're going to assume, until proven otherwise, that's the person that is the, call, the reason for this call for service. Yeah, it's like when you're uh, when you're looking for an answer, or if you're looking for for uh, something, it's easier to see. Like we we talk a lot about mental health, and so it's like if you're looking for reasons to be depressed, they're easy to find. If you're looking for reasons to be optimistic, they're easy to find. And so if you're responding to an incident like this, you're looking for somebody with a gun. First person you see with a gun, like that, completes the circuit in your mind. Like that is the subject, and it may not always be in the forefront of uh, first responders' mind that. There might be people there who are, like we said, good guys with guns. And it's getting more and more that way. We have a lot of, of classes that are grant-funded, federally funded, put on by, by good departments with good instructors that we are trying to get this information out to these officers and get them through training. 
you know, people want to judge an officer for a split-second decision. And imagine being 22, 23, 24 years old in this country right now and for whatever reason signing up to be a cop because it pays so much. <laughs> and <laughs> and you get the minimum training standard that most states set, right? It, rarely do you go to an agency and they're like, you know, the, the state requires us to train you for 600 hours, but we're going to give you 1,800 hours. It's not like that because these agencies have budgets and they have quotas needs and, and quotas and everything yeah. else. You go through the minimum standard for that agency or for that state, and you go through some field training. And most places have anywhere between 8 and 16 or 20 weeks of field training on the job with, with an FTO, with a field training officer. And then you're out on your own, and you get to make life and death decisions. And some of the people that get in this career um, – Think, think about how much life experience a lot of people have at 22, 23, 24 years old. And suddenly this call for service comes out. And with your limited minimum standard training, until we bring some of these grant-funded classes on active shooter to fire and EMS and police and how to respond and tactics and medicine and issues like plain clothes officers or concealed carry weapon holders by good citizens, until we bring these training events to these officers, what are they to think? Yep. So that's that's the officer's perspective. That's that's the that's the mindset of the person responding to a call. And it's really easy to Monday quarterback these these young men and women. I'll give you this perspective. It, life's life's not black and white. We have laws that are in black and white, and we have rules and regs that are in black and white. But then we have to go out and live in this life in this world that's full of different shades of gray. Yeah. And I'll give you this perspective. Uh, think about being an officer who has to challenge somebody and make a, make a quick scan of this person and determine whether or not they're a good guy or a bad guy. Let's say you are the good citizen. Right. And it's an active shooter event. And you're at a large mall. And you hear the gunshots going off. And you get your family to safety. and Or there's nowhere for your family to get to safety. Um, we we teach run, hide, fight, or avoid to not offend. Uh, many people have heard one of those two slogans, and you try to avoid the fight. Hey, look for the exit. Let's get out of here. Yeah. There's no exit. You know, for whatever reason, you go to the end of a corridor, and there's no exit door right there. And there's nowhere for you to to take shelter, to deny access, and to hide. So now you've got to fight. And or in this case, defend your family that you're there with. You don't want them to become the next victims. Yeah. And so you turn the corner. And you, and you see the threat right there. And like in Texas, I, I can't speak for every state, but in Texas where I'm a peace officer at, we have Title II, Chapter 9 of the, uh, chapter nine of the Penal Code. And you can use or threaten to use deadly force if you or an innocent third party are in threat of serious bodily injury or death. So in that, that area, you're legal to present with and use deadly force. Yeah, not too long ago, uh, there was um, a shooting in a church and one of the attendees of the church pulled their legal concealed weapon. I think it was illegal, but uh, it, I don't think the survivors really cared. <laughs> but No, he was, a, he was a retired FBI agent. Yeah, okay. And um, th- that right there is, is, is kind of what I'm getting at. There were actually two of them. One of them wasn't as well trained or he was hesitant in his draw. I don't want to speak ill of him. He died. But he went to confront the evil person that showed up and he died. And during that same time, the person you're speaking about drew his weapon and shot into the threat right there and there. So imagine you're that person. You can't avoid, you can't deny, now you have to defend. 
you're well within the legalities to defend your family, yourself, and any other innocents that are around you from being killed by this evil person. You and un- unfortunately, the situation isn't just over. It's not like a video game or a movie where it flays, fades to black and right. that's that's it. Like you, you're still in the moment. You can't just magic yourself away. No. And the responding officers, one way or another, are going to want to know who shot that person. So, well, and imagine the responding officers. You come around the corner, you see the threat, you end the threat, and then at the same time, around the opposite corner, the responding officers have arrived. And they come around the corner and they see you, a guy with a gun, with smoke coming from it. Yep. It's a lot to process. And so we're training officers as best we can, but we also have to, to train the citizens. It, it's, it's one of those issues that you can't expect training to be on one side of the house. If you're going to take this obligation and this, I'll even say a burden. It's, it's a burden to carry a gun every day. Yeah, particularly because uh, if you are in that situation with your family, you know, you're, you would feel compelled to use it if they are in danger. And it is, like you said, a burden. You can't go out to a bar and, and get drunk if you're carrying a weapon. So, like, you have a certain responsibility when you do carry that. So what advice uh, would you uh, give to the the private citizen as far as, like, how – say you've addressed the threat, right, and I we, we're not going to get into that. Like, you know, everybody who carries their weapon, hopefully they're properly trained and they have their own, you know, training regimen. So once the threat is itself assessed, we're not going to get into the tactics of dealing with an active shooter, but more so afterwards – what advice would you have uh, for that either plainclothes officer or you know private citizen that address the active shooter now that the first threat that they see is down and that gap in between from then and when they make it home safely? Well, that, that right there, that, that is the aftermath. That's the most dangerous part. The, the easy part is going into the threat, if you will. The hard part is now, okay, the threat's done with. What do I do? So if the threat still exists, you know, bullets don't don't work like magic, like on video games. Sometimes you shoot people and they're still in the fight. Sometimes you shoot people and they're in the fight for a while, they're alive. So as long as the threat exists, you still need the gun in your hand. But as soon as the threat is over, there's no more reason to have the gun in your hand. There's none. You either need the gun in, the hand, in your hand because he's still actually trying to fight or he's not complying or he hasn't separated for the weapon. This, this evil person that's chose to shoot innocent people. But once that threat is neutralized, to whatever degree we will call it neutralized, once it's no longer a threat, there's no reason to have the gun in your hand because you are now a target. Because it's not just you have to be worried about being shot from the police when they respond. Just like you were a citizen and a good person with a gun, around the next corner is another good guy with a gun that hurts shots. Yeah, very true. And he comes around the corner and he sees you good guy with a gun but he doesn't know you're a good guy and he has no training potentially from a police academy or field training or any kind of active shooter programs he could have had a zero training regimen and just met the met the basic requirements to go get a permit and so you're not just worried about responding officers you're worried about everybody around you whether you're a plainclothes off-duty peace officer or you're a good citizen and you have a permit to carry a gun or you live in a state where it's constitutional carry it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if you're a good guy with a gun, as soon as the threat is neutralized, many programs out, out there advocate holstering that weapon as soon as possible. That's yeah. step one. Step two is 
advise somebody and pick someone specific out of the crowd. Hey, call 911. Tell them there was a shooting. Tell them that there's a good guy here, whether you identify yourself as an off-duty cop or you say someone with a permit. There's a good guy here, and this is what I'm wearing. This is the good guy's description. That's a, that's very good advice. And whenever you pick somebody out of the crowd, pick someone specific. And my example is whenever I happens all the time when went to peace officers, when they're like, hey, get back, or hey, somebody over there, come help me. And we'll call for a crowd, you know, asking citizens for aid. And nobody comes. Nobody steps forward. And usually it's because they, everyone thinks somebody else will do it. That's that's very likened to the fact where, you know, we you train our leaders in the military not to say, hey, somebody set, uh, you know, a, a hasty VCP. Hey, somebody, you know, sweep the LZ for IEDs. You say, no, like, uh, Sharp, you do it. Pfeffer, you do it. You know, like, you, you pick some, hey, like, hey, striped turtleneck dude, come here, you know? Exactly. Pick somebody out. Pick someone. You have a split second to make a decision, but pick somebody out that you think looks less hysterical than everybody else, <laughs> for lack of better terms, and say, hey, you, plaid shirt and blue jeans. Hey, older white guy, come here. I need you to call 911. Tell them there was a shooting. The bad guy's been killed, and the good guy that stopped it is wearing blue jeans and a white T-shirt. <laughs> I can I just imagine be like, hey, you over there. Yeah, you know who I'm talking to, the bow-legged one. You come here. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? The guy that looks down and figures out he's bow-legged at that moment in time, yeah. he'll probably comply. But pick someone specific out of the crowd. Hey, call 911. Yeah, and they'll be like, hey, uh, be advised. Uh, there there was a shooter. A private citizen took him down. What does he look like? Uh, he's, he's about 5'11", 250. Looks like he used to work out but maybe stopped within the last <laughs> few years. And I'm just sitting over there just like, you don't have a gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, there's, there's a number of ways to give a description. And uh, I'll tell you what, the best thing is simple, simple terms. Yeah. Like you had me start out describing that uh, peace officer's mindset whenever he arrives on scene. Keep it simple. And yeah, you said something earlier that I that I really liked uh, when you I, I listened into your guys' uh, training session earlier. Um, what needs to be done? Do that. What needs to be done next? Do that. And so kind of like addressing the problems like as they happen, like, okay, so like bad guy comes out and he's shooting. What needs to be done? Okay, well, he needs to be stopped. All right, now that he's stopped, what needs to happen next? Call 911. What needs to happen next? Tell them not to shoot me. What needs to happen next? You know, and then so it's just like don't don't try to take it all in at once. Pick something that needs to be done. Do it. And then what needs to be done next? Exactly. It, it's it's going to be a big scene. You're going to be there for a long time. Not only are you a witness to a mass murder or attempted mass murder, but you also took action as a citizen and you committed homicide. Now, is it legally justified homicide? Absolutely. But it still has to be processed. And there's a lot to do. But before we even get to all those points, think about all the people that he shot. Yeah. How long is it going to take fire and EMS to get there? They're not coming in until the scene's halfway clear and secured by by the police officers. Yeah. If there's bleeding people around you, how long does it take to hemorrhage out? Depends on where you're hit. Yeah. It depends the etiology of the wound. There's a number of things. So direct someone to call 911. Tell them what the good guy is wearing. I would leave it at that. It Just like the peace officer that's arriving has a lot on his plate, so do those poor dispatchers in that call center. Think about the mass amount of 911 calls they're getting at this event. If there's a shooting at a mall or a church, how many people are on their cell phones automatically calling 911? Yeah. 
It could be that you give the description of you and the description of the suspect, and they get transcribed. Oh, Lord. And here's the thing. We're all human beings. Yeah. People make errors, right? So I go back to keep it simple. Just give the description of yourself. Say, hell, tell them the good guy that stopped it and is wearing a white shirt and blue jeans. Hey, you over there, you in the red shirt, help that woman. She's bleeding. Put pressure on that woman. Yep. Now, would now would you recommend um, once that the the weapon is holstered, right? And so, obviously, you know, stay vigilant in case there's a secondary shooter that you're not aware about or whatever. But like, once things have gone quiet and you're reasonably comfortable that the threat is over, you've holstered the weapon. Now, do you recommend like staying in place, like going outside with your hands up? Like, how do how do you inform responding officers like hey yes that was me but don't shoot me so again it's a very dynamic chaotic situation um at that point right there and then i wouldn't remove myself from the situation very far um the, the best thing you can do is the first thing we talked about is holster that weapon once the threat is done with after you're holstered and you hear or see the police officers coming just have your hands up and tell them who you are and what you did could they be giving you orders anyway? Yes. Could they be telling you to get on your knees and they're going to handcuff you? Yes, they could. And a lot of these people that carry guns for a living, and they're like, well, no, I or carry guns because they have, they have a permit. And they're like, no, I just did a good thing. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to get on my knees. Put yourself back in the mindset of that young man or young woman that I talked about earlier. Yeah. They, you know, trust but verify. You tell me you're a good guy. How many times have bad guys told officers, yeah, I don't have a gun, and then they shot them in the face? Yeah. And their kids grow up without a father or a mother. It's very so, true. So don't get mad at the cops because they put you on your knees or they put you on your face and they handcuff you. Are they going to take the handcuffs off later? Yes. They're going to. Did you commit a crime? No. But for right there and then, put yourself in their shoes. So be compliant with the officers that arrive. Give them the information that they need. Guess what? Everyone else in the crowd is going to say the same thing, that you stopped the bad guy. You'll be praised as a hero. I mean, unless you have an ex-girlfriend in the crowd, and then she, <laughs> she tries to pull a fast one. That's true. I know I got, I know I got a couple buddies out there that they got to keep their eyes open for that. You know, in that case, you know, I just say shop somewhere else. You know? <laughs> Do you want to look handsome as fuck? Well, then you should try Combat Comb Over for your hair and your face and your beard. And then once you have all that additional swagger, you need something to carry it around in, use the Nut Ruck by Arbor Arms. And while you're uh, carrying that Nut Ruck, you should also remember to keep yourself as fresh as possible because you never know what might happen when you're looking that good. So keep yourself some body powder from Hollywood Powder Company. Use our discount code SMOKEPIT on all of our sponsors to save yourself some money. But uh, it, it, there's a lot to process when you're spawning that scene. And there's a lot to process for you as a good guy with a gun should you ever be put in that position to have to actually use force. Yeah, I um, I, I don't think I was under any illusion that, you know, I could just smoke someone and, you know, like do the, the cowboy pistol swirl on my finger and like holster it properly. And like the mayor would just come up and put like a medal around my neck. Like, no, I God forbid it ever happens. But if I'm in that situation, like I know I'm probably going to get cuffed. 
you know, the responding officers show up and they're like, yeah, he shot that guy. And I'm like, yeah, it was me. Like, I'm going to be as compliant as I can. Be like, hey, my shoulders aren't what they used to be. Like, maybe take it easy on me. But, yeah, I do have, a, um, you know, my, my pistols on this hip, my permits in this pocket, you know, like give them whatever information they need, whatever information they ask for. But at that point in time, I've already survived one potentially deadly situation. Why would I decrease my odds of surviving the next potentially deadly situation, which in that case would be holding a smoking gun when officers are responding. Officers are other good guys with guns. Yeah. Um, Think about how many guns there are in America. Think about how many permit holders there are. Yeah. And think about how many of those have such little training. Some of them have a lot of training. Some of them have a lot of great military experience. Some of them have no training. So it's not, like I say, the easy part is going around the corner and shooting the the bad guy with a gun. That's the easy part. The hard part now is we got these people that are bleeding. You know, kids and moms and dads are crying because somebody loved in their family was just shot in front of them. Cops are responding uh, with with uh, extremely high heart rate and adrenaline dumping with many unknowns to them. And a lot of cops have died responding to active shooter events. We just had another one in Colorado a couple months ago. And, you know, he had, he had zero hesitation running towards that fight in that grocery store. And he gave his life for it. And now think about the next active shooter event in that town or that area. Every cop is going to respond to it thinking, this cost me my life, but I'm still going to go. Yeah. So it's really easy to hate on police officers. And that's something that's common with the public now. And just put yourself in their shoes for a moment and realize that they're human beings. They make errors. They make good decisions as well. 99.9% of the time they make good decisions. And think that a one-year officer is not going to make as good of a decision as a 10-year officer, a 20-year officer. The example I gave, I, I'll give or I'll ask you is, did you make of as good tactical decisions whenever you were uh, E2 or E3 as you did at the end of your career? And I think that's a, a very good question because it's so layered. I feel like, objectively speaking, you have more tools, you have more experience, you have uh, more training to be able to handle situations. But the way that I responded to gunshots as a 19-year-old on my first deployment versus you know, 20-something, 26, 27-year-old on my fourth deployment, like, very different. Because, like, when I was a young kid, like, I was I was eager, you know, to, like, prove myself. I was eager to get in the scrap. Like, gunshots went off. Like, I was in that direction. And when I was a little bit older, gunshots would go off. And now my mindset is just like, okay, I'm responsible for the squad, not just my sector of fire. So, you know, depending on like, are they the desk sergeant? Are they uh, a training officer who has to look after, you know, like a a rookie? And so it's such a multi-layered answer because it could be different for every person. Like, where are they in their lives? Where are they in their careers? How much training do they have? How many other active shooter events have they been involved in? Because I was more scared on my second deployment than I was my first deployment because I knew what blood looked like. I knew Uh, how bad things could go on my second deployment as where I was kind of like naive on my first deployment. So it's, it's such a, it's, it's it's such a random chance of like what officer is going to respond? Where are they in their career? How much training has they had? Are they more hypervigilant to certain things because they've been through bad situations before because they recently lost an officer and you know, you have something, 
nearly a million law enforcement officers across the country. Well, it's, it's drastically reducing daily, but yeah. our numbers a few, uh, four or five years ago were nearly a million. Um, we're under 900,000 now. You know, you got the, the city, the county, the state, federal, uh, various things, you know, um, you know, so it, you have no idea who that responding person is, and then you also don't know who it might be that plainclothes officer that that's there as well. So to your point, the idea is make yourself less of a target and give people that are responding with guns, whether they be uniformed or not, less reasons to kill you if you're a good guy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, give them no reason to kill you. Give them as much information as possible. Call 911. Be as compliant as possible. And it's not just police. Imagine this, like I'm also a paramedic. I was not as good of a paramedic my first day in the ambulance by myself without a training officer as I was my last time. Now, do you get to pick and choose which paramedic arrives when you call 911 because you're Loved family members having a heart attack? No, you don't. <laughs> I wish you could, but you don't. I mean, yeah, like you but, can see like the Yelp reviews on each paramedic crew, and you're like, no, I'll take this one. Exactly. And do you get to pick and choose what doctor you get when you go to the ER? Nope. You could have a doctor that has been there for 20 years and is great at emergency medicine, and he knows exactly what's going on. You can have a doctor that just got done with his residency, and this is his first shift in the ER by himself. Now, we can't hate on the people with no experience because how else do you get experience? Fair point. That That's true for all walks of life, law enforcement, medicine, military, et cetera. It doesn't matter. You've got to get experience somehow. But we, we live in this culture now where we judge immediately. We give no grace. We give no forgiveness. And we don't believe that human beings, whether they wear a badge or a white coat with MD on it, or they wear a paramedic uniform, we give them no grace, and we expect them to know everything and be perfect human beings. Well, human beings make error. They do. In the military, did you not ever have or hear of friendly fire? Yeah. And I know that you believed in your fellow Marines. Yeah. But they still made mistakes. And I think um, I got shot at the most by Iraqi soldiers. Then secondly, after that, uh, U.S. Army soldiers shot at us quite a bit, uh, particularly outside of Ramadi. Um, I did take a sim round in the ass one time from one of the boot Marines. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he's a father now. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He, he made a mistake in training, right? Yeah. But that's why we have training. He he'd made that mistake in training, so we didn't make it in the real world. My point is that... And to be fair, I mean, I do have a nice, big, juicy dumper. And so, like, it might have just gotten <laughs> in the way. Yeah, you know, it, you know, it, it, hey, maybe it's like, uh, what's that movie, Speed? You yeah. Know, take it out of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... He's like, I'll save you, Lance Corporal, and shot me in the ass so I'd go down. <laughs> so I wouldn't get shot in the face, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Maybe she got a medal. But, <laughs> so, uh... uh do you have any final advice to, uh, to to the listeners if they do find themselves in one of those uh, unfortunate circumstances? Because best case scenario, like, you know, you just you're happy, your your family loves you, you make money, you know, you're getting laid every day. But that's not unfortunate. That's not how real life goes. And you might find yourself in a bad situation as a subject matter expert. What do you wish more people knew? I wish, I wish that more people knew the burden. So with that burden comes responsibility. And that's responsibility to go get training um, from either professionals or training your own for marksmanship. You know, just because you're a good guy with a gun 
So imagine this. You're going to shoot at a bad guy, but he's in a crowd of people. But that good guy with a gun went to the range once a year. Is he as likely to shoot innocents around him as the bad guy that he's aiming at? Yeah. So these are all perishable skills. And it comes down to a mindset. It comes down to a responsibility. That if I'm going to take on this burden and carry this weapon to protect me and my loved ones and innocents around me, I, I need to do more than just the bare minimum. I need to go out and seek out training. And, you know, that, that in itself is a double-edged sword. There's a lot of people out there that are crackerjacks that got a cool website, <laughs> and they they have high prices for their training, and it really offers nothing of value. And there's people out there that offer amazing training that can save your life or the life of a loved one. So do your research. If you're going to do it, invest in training, invest in ammunition to train with. I would rather have a man beside me that instead of 10 really expensive guns, he had one gun that he sp- spent all the extra money on ammo for training. Yeah. And I would rather have that person that respected that that weapon is a tool and we don't want to use it unless we have to. But the day that we have to, I will use it well because I've, I've trained myself for it mentally, physically. And know that there's going to be a lot of crap afterwards. You know, a lot of listeners, uh, they might have had a lot of experience in combat or law enforcement or other walks of life where they're used to stress, and some of your listeners may not. Know that you're going to have to live with whatever decisions that you make. And people are brash about it. You know, people online today, it's just the worst of humanity sometimes. And uh, the comments and the crap that people say, you know, I thought I saw the worst in the streets throughout my career. And I get online, it's worse than that. And people have no grace or forgiveness or context that we live in this gray world. And realize that that once you go down this path, that people are going to money quarterback you and that you're, you're going to have to live with the decisions that you make. And God forbid you have to choose to ever take someone's life. But if you do, you're going to have to live with it and be good with it. If you're not prepared to do that, then just don't carry the gun. I know Fair a lot point, of pe- yeah. I know a lot of people that carry a gun because it's their right, and you know what? It absolutely is. We're Americans; it's our right to own, own firearms. It is. It's I, I believe in the Constitution, and you'll never sway me or a lot of my friends in law enforcement. Otherwise, we may quote unquote work for the government. Well, I believe in the Second Amendment, like I believe in every other amendment in the entire Constitution. But if you don't think that you have the ability to take someone's life and actually use it. God forbid you pull it out, you hesitate, and that gun's used against you. Yeah. So seek out training. Do research on training. You know, ammo's horrible right now. Yeah. God, it's horrible. But The range uh, date is almost as expensive as going out for steak and lobster. Exactly. But, you know, make it's your, it's your life. Make your priorities. Go spend some money on ammo. And, and if you're going to take up this sword, be ready to use it. Well, thank you so much for um, all that uh, great insight, and we uh, thank you for being out there. I um, I may have spent some time overseas doing my deployments, but then when I got to go home, like I hung it up and I didn't have to think about it. And so I have the utmost respect for the officers that you know have to go out there day in, day out, and um, you know face the the worst of the country as their daily profession. And so I know the military gets a lot of praise and the Budweiser commercials and the discounts and all that stuff. But realistically, my set, my deployments were only a few months at a time. And then, 
you know, it was just field craft after that. And so particularly being in the departments that you are like, you know, thank you for going out there and you know, dealing with those, um, those violent criminals that, uh, the rest of us don't have to think about when we're just enjoying our barbecues and our, and our picnics. Well, I appreciate it. And I, I, I appreciate everything about you from your service to what you do now with pop smoke. I think it's, I think it's an amazing organization and media outlet and I wish there were more of it. And right, uh, before we leave, are there any organizations or companies that uh, that you like to work with that you'd like to give a shout out to? Uh, one of them, you know, civilians are wanting to to learn more about how they should respond to an active shooting. Um, an organization called Alert. It's based out of Texas State University, and it stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training. It's Alert with two R's. Uh, go to alert.org, look up these things called uh, craze classes or CRCC classes. They're designed to teach civilians, one, what to do in an active shooter event. And some of them even teach a little bit of medical. Um, it's part of the Stop the Bleed campaign. It's kind of a uh, watered-down version of TCCC or TECC, um, just to give civilians some kind of insight on, hey, I got shot or a loved one got shot, what do I do to save their life? Um, I wish that training like that like we were talking about earlier, I wish that basic life-saving training like stopping bleeding or firearms familiarization and, and learning firearm safety rules was just part of every high school kid's curriculum. Yeah, it, it kills me seeing all these videos online of the, the, the well, hopefully it doesn't actually kill me. It would be some comedic irony. But the kids, say get their first firearm or they're playing with their parents. And the first thing they do is put the finger on the trigger because it's like the natural reflex, the way that your hand curls. And, you know, they, they don't have that mindset like, hey, this is the death switch. You know, like I could kill my friend or myself by being careless. And so I, I, I do agree with you. I wish that instead of the fucking square dance, they taught you to keep your fucking booger uh, picker off the bang switch, you know. Yeah, I do, too. But, yeah, there's great training there. And those are. Those are good classes. Other than that, um, seek out, get Stop the Bleed campaign classes for medical. And I, I highly recommend medical along with firearms training. And the example that I give is as police officers, do we expect to get shot? I ask a lot of cops that I teach and train, do you expect to get shot? And they're like, well, no. I'm like, do you wear a bulletproof or bullet-resistant vest every day? Well, yeah. Why? You carry a gun for a living, you expect to get shot. So train for it. Do I want to? No. But I'm going to expect that Murphy's alive and well, and I'm going to pull up my guns to do a good deed that day and fight against evil, and I may get shot for it. Her loved one, hopefully, get, doesn't get shot, but they do, and I know how to fix it. So along with your firearms training, pick out good stop-the-bleed training classes. Um, they're everywhere now. That campaign's huge. It's, it's a great kind of TCCC version for civilians. And seek out good firearms training. Go to, go to places like Alert for civilian training on what to do if you're in an active shooter event. And uh, are there any uh, companies that are coming out with new tech or uh, equipment or gear that you're a big fan of that you, you think people should look into? Um, you know, the market today is just so wide open. Yeah. And it really is. I'll say this. I won't recommend a specific specific company. I mean, there's great holsters out there, um, especially for concealed carry, like uh, one of my favorites is Conceal Craft, and there's other ones that are, um, you look at them and, and they're, they're Bravo Concealment. There's, there's great holsters. 
you know, nothing kills me more than whenever I see somebody and they go out and spend a thousand dollars on a gun, and it's a good gun, it's a great pistol, and then they spend twenty dollars on a holster. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, training accidents happen. People have have ads or nds or whatever you want to call it, unholstering or reholstering. Their shirt gets caught up, or they're not properly trained, or they have a piece of crap holster. And all they did was give more people, uh, for lack of a better term, ammunition against carrying guns. Yeah. And all they did was hurt the reputation of everybody out there that carries, whether they're off to the officer or they got a permit. Uh, if you're going to spend good money on something, get, spend good money on medical gear and yeah. get spend good money on a holster. I think that is, to your point, uh, the fact that it is such a burden because uh, – Brother man, like I, I know you don't spend a lot of time in Virginia, but between 295, 64, I 95, there's times where I'm sitting in traffic and like, you know, that, that, I have that pistol on my holster and people are just dickheads and I'm just like 10 and 2 on the steering wheel and I'm like, <laughs> this is a burden. Like, this is a burden. Like, you know, don't, and obviously I'm joking with myself, a little bit of gallows humor, but um, I'm like, yeah, don't, you know, don't uh, pull the pistol and go buck wild. Don't give people a reason to hate gun owners. Uh, we we already got so many reasons in this country, <laughs> and you know sometimes I tell you who's our worst enemy for cops is cops. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy, and it's like you said, there's almost a million great cops out there, but there's a few, and they get caught on video. It's the same thing for gun owners in America, and same thing for gun people that carry guns. You know, people will look and they let their weapon unsecured, and their three or four year old finds it and shoots himself, and mm -hmm. it's a tragic event. Yeah. Well, the media loves nothing more than to advertise that story because it it, it almost criminalizes and puts in an evil limelight every gun owner in America now. Like you're evil to yeah. own guns and have kids. And so what what I usually challenge people with is, you know, I'm I'm a fairly large guy now, and I'm generally armed unless I'm in a area that prohibits that, or I'm, you know, uh, having a beer or two. You know, I'm generally armed wherever I am. And uh, it's not something that you see now, but I wasn't always this way. And so people say, oh, yeah, defund the police. And I'll say, well, let, let me ask you this. I, uh, I think I was seven or eight at the time. And um, my mom had been with an abusive man who had put me in the hospital. He had beaten me on multiple occasions. We had to go to a battered children's shelter. I had to you know, live in a place where you punch a door code in, blackout windows. Like you don't even know where it's at. And, you know, to get away from this individual, one day I'm out home by myself and he shows up to the house with a shotgun and he's pissed as hell and he's banging on the door, probably drunk, whatever the case was. I'm at home at, by myself. What can I do? I called 911. So if you have the mentality to, quote unquote, defund the police, you're essentially saying that anyone who is a victim of um, domestic abuse or any other kind of abuse you're essentially telling them that they are required to fend for themselves because as you know, a seven, eight year old child, I couldn't do anything against a full grown person with a shotgun. If he had busted down the door or decided to maybe come through a window or something, I would have been helpless. I had no allies except for the fact that I could call 911 and a police officer would respond. So you can't look me in the eye and tell me that you care about your fellow person if you're going to take away the one tool that a victim of domestic or sexual abuse has to protect themselves, and that's calling 911. Right. You know, and it wears me out because for years the argument against guns was, well, call the police. And now the same people that are arguing 
against guns are also are are advocating to defund to fund the police, at least on that side of the house, you know, without making it too political. So here's what I'll say. Do a little bit of research and find out how many rapes and homicides happened in the autonomous zone in Seattle where officers weren't allowed to go. And people can get, get online and Google it and see how many rapes and homicides there were. And it, you know, it, it's saddening. It's heartbreaking is what it is. I'm going to take a guess that the number will surprise me when I look. It, it will. And it's not, not highly advertised. And we know the, all the things in this country about politics and media and everything else. But it, it's sad and it's heartbreaking. And... Here's what I'll say. You know, I believe in equality between sexes, between genders. I believe in that. I have as much rights as a woman, and she has as much rights as I do. But that, just because we have equal rights, doesn't mean that God created us equal. And I'm a bigger guy. You're a bigger guy. If I mean, if I'm an evil person, and I mean to do harm against a female of small stature, what can she do to stop me? And and I'm not saying she's helpless. I'm saying she's made different because my weaknesses as a man are usually her strengths. And we've confused the thing with of equality means same. Just because we're equal in rights doesn't mean we're the same. And I mean, to to round out the argument, you know, what if you're a smaller guy? What if you're, you know, five, three hundred pounds and you're just a smaller guy? And then there's another guy who's six, four and looks at you and sees you as somebody that he could potentially assault, you know? Exactly. Or what if you're a large guy and there's three or four people? Yeah. I don't care how awesome you are when you got a gang of people coming up on you. What makes us equal? Well, we either have police to protect us, and unfortunately, we don't have the funding or manpower to assign a police officer to every single citizen, or we have what Colt said made us all equal. Yeah. And you have one of the two or both, but you can't have neither. It makes sense. And uh, I you know, highly encourage our listeners to, uh, to look into that. Uh, also, please be aware of your um, local laws and what you're allowed to do and not do. Unfortunately, we know that bad guys don't follow laws, and if you're disarming yourself to be in a situation to be law compliant, just be aware of the fact that you might encounter something, and then what are you going to do if that situation happens? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much uh, for for joining us. Uh, Fair winds, following seas, and we'll see you next time here in the Smoke Pit.